A scripture reading will be taken from the book of John, the fourth chapter, as was read earlier. John chapter 4 and verse 44. John chapter 4 and verse 44. The Bible says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Our message this Sabbath, our final installment on our series on apologetics, is entitled, In Defense of Ellen White. In Defense of Ellen White. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word, to study more about the spirit of prophecy. I ask once again, Lord, that you make me just a nail upon the wall. Lord, just a useless, sorry nail. Hammer that nail in with your Holy Spirit. And upon that nail, hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let me not be seen or heard, Father. Instead, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. We talked about last week one of the most difficult aspects. And for those who are visiting, some may not have even heard of Ellen White or know who she is. Um, one of our, our brethren was telling us at prayer meeting that when he was given the books, um, The Great Controversy and Desire of Age, and he read them, he was asking where this, where this author lived. The writings were so relevant, he thought she was still alive somewhere in America. It's one of the great challenges. In fact, there are those who criticize and marginalize us as Adventists because we claim that we have a prophet who spoke and wrote among us over a and who died over a hundred years ago. There are many who leave the church because of this point, who ridicule the church on this point. Um, and as we talk, as we spoke about last week, if you don't understand this point, it will shake your faith. As we talked about last week, in every generation, when God is going to do something great, when he's going to do something big, Every single time, one of the things that God does is he sends a prophet. Someone speaks to that time. And we know, based on the prophecies we've discussed, that in 1798, the time of the end began. And in 1844, God did a great move. He moved from uh, the holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus moved into the most holy place. And you'd have to believe that at that time, as God was calling out a remnant, a, a last day church, that he would have a prophet to instruct that church, just as Jeremiah did during the time of the exile, as Moses did at the time of the exodus, as Noah did at the time of the flood. If you, if you stand on the understanding of scripture, it is not at all inconceivable. In fact, it would be expected that God would send someone to instruct his people. And as I was saying in the baby dedication, especially since this is the most trying of times in human history. Read this text last week, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. And this is uh, actually parallels Sister White's first vision. It says, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that what? That find it. Did you hear that? Few even find the right way. Verse 15. Get into prophets now. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus warns that, in the, that especially for us here in the last days, we need to be careful about false prophets. Now, if there are false prophets, almost by definition it means uh, uh, there has to be some true prophets. The warning is to be able to discern who is false and who is true. Jesus gives the answer twice before the passage we're going to read is finished. First, he says, you shall know them what? By their fruits. 
Then he gives this parable, uh, an, an example. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? In other words, what sense would it make for you to collect thorns and bring it home uh, to make a fruit salad? You know the fruit. You see the fruit. You understand the fruit. Even so, every good, good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. You, you judge the prophet by what they produce. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He finishes by saying this, Matthew 7 and verse 20. Wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. As we look at the gift of prophecy and the spirit of prophecy, the writings of Ellen White, this is the key standard, in my opinion. There are many others. We talked about some of them last week. We're going to some of them again this week. But you've got to look at what does the fruit produce? Second Chronicles chapter 19, speaking of prophets, it says, Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. In these days, they, will te they, will, they, are, they testify against the spirit of prophecy. They will not hear. And I want to submit, I want to say something I said last week again. There are many who do not like the testimonies to the church as given by Sister White because it is too uh, uh, constructive in its criticism. I'll say it nicely that way. We don't want to hear that we need to change. We don't want to hear that we need to, to seek holiness, that, that we are, it is not enough that we come to Christ. We must come to him and ask that he transform and change us. It is not simply that we come to Christ to be justified. We come to him also to be sanctified. Last night in our family worship, we were studying from Ezekiel uh, 18. Talking about repentance, and the Bible commentary speaks of the difference between repentance and confession. There are many who have confessed and have never repented. So, the questions for today. Number one, was Ellen White a plagiarist? I told you the question we would go from last week. The second one, which is also very important, is, was she a racist? Number three, did her prophecies come true? And I will only barely touch on that one. But then the third, the fourth or the final one is, were her writings on health accurate? So we've got some things to look at. Remember what I said? By their fruits, ye shall know them. So we get a chance to look at the fruit. And again, as a Christian, as someone who believes in sola scriptura, in the word of God as the only and final rule of faith, I will not read something that would jeopardize or go against that rule. Right? But we talked about last week that there were prophets who were never canonized, like Nathan and Deborah and others who never wrote a book of the Bible, yet they had not only the gift of prophecy and the spirit of prophecy, they had the authority of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this. This is from 1980, November 7th. This is the Los Angeles Times article. Let's just jump right in the deep end of the pool. They put in a thing that says Seventh-day Adventist prophet White is called plagiarist. And when you read this article, um, at the time there was a, a guy named uh, Walter Ray, an Adventist pastor who, and if some of you are from California, uh, came out of California. And the, it, of course it circled the globe. The Los Angeles Times picked it up. Other newspapers picked it up. They began to copy from his book and, and speak uh, that she was a plagiarist. And many Adventists lost their faith. And part of that is because they had a misunderstanding of her and her writings. Thinking that every word she wrote, she, she's, she's not like the Muslims claim the prophet Muhammad is, where he says the angel Gabriel, this is what the Muslims believe, dictated to him the Quran. And they wrote the Quran out and it comes straight from Gabriel to the book, that, that's, that was a misunderstanding. That's not what she did, as we'll see. But the questions on plagiarism really look 
at two questions further. Did she intentionally take material and claim it as her own in order to deceive her readers? Because if she did, that would be underhanded and would, in many ways, disqualify her fruit. Amen? The other question is, did she take from others and claim it was from God? So watch this. And I like because I can start with her own words in this defense. You go to the, the great controversy and some of the, um, um, the, the, the precursor pages. And here's what she says. In some cases where a historian has so grouped together events as to afford in brief a comprehensive view of the subject or has summarized details in a convenient manner, his words have been quoted. Did you see that? But in some instances, no specific credit has been given since the quotations are not given for the purpose of citing the, that writer as authority. But because his statements affords a ready and forcible presentation to the subject. So if she's a plagiarist, she's not a very smart one because she starts the book by saying that, in fact, she studied other books and where it was written well, she used it. Now, this is nothing different than people do writing books today. In fact, if you are in academia, you can't write and publish a paper unless there's a very long reference section where you literally take information from other people. In fact, there are scientific articles and books written where literally 80, 90 percent of it comes from someone at pieces from other people. Just put together in a new place, in a new way to make a new point or to strengthen a point. Now, the, they, this, the, 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 her, her detractors at the time said that up to 80, 90 percent of her writings were plagiarized. If you read one of her books, 89 percent. Now, that has been proven patently false. And I meant to put a slide up where you would see the percentage of the books. And I think the book with the highest percentage is probably the great controversy at maybe 15 percent you could find somewhere else. Most of her books, it's under 3 percent. And they included many times the very verses of the Bible she quoted. Right? So you're getting that? Now, obviously a book like The Great Controversy, there was a lot of history in the book. So there was a lot that you'd have to read yourself to know to, in order to write such a book. Same thing with The Desire of Ages, which is another book that they say that about. But when you go and read what Ellen White does, in most instances, what you find is it, she, she might borrow from a writer in order to describe a location. But the spiritual application and the lesson for you to learn is wholly hers. And once you understand that, you understand that she is not unique in doing this. And it was a necessary part of being a writer. There's a lot of things. When you read about this, one thing they say is if she had really tried to steal that high, any real significant percentage of her writings from someone else, she could never have produced 25 million words of writing. It takes. I don't know if you've ever tried copying something. Remember, they couldn't cut and paste. They didn't have Microsoft Word. They had old typewriters. Typewriters the size of the front of an old Buick. And first it would be penned and then it would be, you understand what I'm saying? Remember that the printing press wasn't, you know, you, to reproduce one of the reasons religious authors, and, and this is one of the things that's key to remember. The, in that time, religious authors often borrowed from each other and were happy with it because they were more concerned with the word going out than they were about getting credit. This idea that you stole my stuff and I want a, 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 a credit for it is, has everything to do with the me society we live in now. That's mine. You better pay me for it. So even as we look at the laws around uh, plagiarism and, and, and literary uh, uh, copywriting and so forth, the truth of the matter is in the century which she, she was born, very little of it was actually done. It was, it did, what we understand as all these things today did not exist then. In fact, uh, part of the reason you see some of these similarities with her works and others is because they cover the same topic. One of the guys, I, I should have put all this in here, but one of the guys I was reading actually took a book she wrote that was written, uh, uh, I think, 15 or 30 years after Ellen White wrote her book. And when you do the same comparison, that book lights up as if he borrowed from Ellen White. Part of the reason is if you are writing about Judas and his uh, betrayal of Christ, it is difficult to write it and it not be similar. Not if you're writing truth. 
But it wasn't just this. Even in the scripture, look at the book of Luke. Luke, the physician who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he wrote on purpose to a guy named Theophilus. And here's what he says. Luke 1.1. 1, 1, For as, much, as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely beloved among us. Even as they delivered them unto us, which, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Someone gave him parts of the book he wrote. Look at this. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. In other words, Luke says, Luke was, remember, Luke is the, is the, is one of the, is the, really the only Greek writer in the Bible. Um, and he says, listen, I did my research, Theophilus. I put it all together because I don't want you to believe Theophilus and not have a solid foundation for what you believe about Jesus Christ. The book of Luke, and I could go through the whole Bible and show you where things are. In fact, Luke and, and Luke and Matthew borrow from Mark. You don't see in, in either one of those gospels, they say, you know, thank you, Mark, and by extension, Peter, for this information. Watch this. This is the amplified version of the Bible on the same text. I want you to get a real clear picture of what Luke is saying, because if you, if you say that you would disqualify the writings of Sister White as being inspired because she borrowed things from other writers, you'd have to, you'd then have to say you disqualify the book of Luke. Since, as I, as well known, many have undertaken to compile an orderly account of the things which have been fulfilled among us by God, exactly as they were handed down to us by those with personal experience, who from the beginning of Christ's ministry were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that is, of the teaching concerning salvation through faith in Christ. It seemed fitting for me as well. And so I have decided after carefully searched out and investigated all the events accurately from the very beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That is the history and doctrine of the faith. Is that clear? So Luke took from others to write the book of Luke, but not just Luke. And I, I wish I had time to go through all of them, but so did Solomon. What Solomon says, he says, Ecclesiastes 12, 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he, uh, he gave good heed, and look at what he did, look at what Solomon did when he wrote the book of Proverbs, and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. When you look at the book of Proverbs, you find that there are African proverbs, Egyptian proverbs that are put in. Now, you could say, well, why would he do that? Because Solomon understood that some of these proverbs were truths that would apply to his people. And you can, you can do it, look, do the research, look it up, right? Just like it would be if I wrote a Christian book and I said in the book, um, you know, a proverb like, you know, I'll use one of those Jamaican proverbs, every day the bucket goes to well, one day the bottom I got drop out. Right now, if I put that in a book, would, it, would I be wrong that I quoted a, a proverb? You see what I'm saying? The principle of the proverb is true. And so Solomon did as well. And I give you this to tell you that you could go through the Bible. There's a lot more. John the Revelator. There are many others that when you look, they some of them from even from from apocryphal books, there are similarities, some from outside. But when God breathed on them. They knew what to take, what to use, what to put down. And then they were able to expound on it. I'm talking about the scripture now. Expound upon it so you get a work like the book of Revelation. The same thing happened. The spirit of prophecy. So now let's go a little bit deeper. The LNG White Estate website says this. Because she included such selections from other authors in her writings, critics have charged Ellen White with plagiarism. But the mere use of another's language does not constitute literary theft, as noted by attorney Vincent L. Ramick, a specialist in patent trademark and copyright cases. After reaching about 1,000 copyright, after, about, after researching about 1,000 copyright cases in American legal history, 
Ramick issued a 27-page legal opinion in which he concluded, now this is what he said, Ellen White was not a plagiarist and her work did not constitute copyright infringement or piracy. Now, he came into this. Now, let me tell you, Vincent Ramick was a, is a, was a Roman Catholic. And he came into this project biased against Sister White. Because he had read the stuff that was being said, like the article I showed you at the first. So he came into it believing she was a plagiarist. And he was still given the charge. And I think it's interesting that he's a Roman Catholic that they were giving it to. That'd have been Adventist. They say, nope, that's insider trading. A Roman Catholic. Now, I want you to we'll go a little deeper into this. Ramick points out several factors that critics of Ellen White's writings have failed to take into account when accusing her of literary theft or, de or deceit. This is, the, again, this is this man's specialty, a thousand cases reviewed. Her selection stayed well within legal boundaries of fair use, number one. Number two, Ellen White used the writings of others, but in the way she used them, she made them uniquely her own, adopting the selections into her own literary framework. Number three, Ellen White urged her readings, this one is important, to get copies of some of the very books she made use of, demonstrating that she did not attempt to conceal the fact of her use of literary sources and that she had no intention to defraud or supersede the works of any other author. The two books that she uses to write, um, The Desire of Ages, Ellen White told people that this Christmas season, that's right, she, Ellen White would have given out shoeboxes, maybe she'd have helped to send them around. She said, this Christmas season, go and buy these two books. And she said, give them to people to read to their children aloud over the Christmas holiday. Or two books on the life of Christ. So if you're a plagiarist, do you tell people, and you're trying to hide it from people, do you tell people to read the very books that they're claiming you plagiarized from? He goes on and says, uh, this, is, uh, this is from Herbert Douglas. He says, Ellen White did not copy wholesale or without discrimination. What she selected or did not select and how she altered what she selected reveals that she used literary sources to amplify or to state more forcefully, forcefully her own transcending themes. She was the master, not the slave of her sources. In the book by Herbert E. Douglas, Messenger of the Lord, page 461. There's another interesting one from, from the SDA, uh, from the LNG White Estate. One of our Bible commentary editors found it to be common among 19th century religious authors. While editing the SDA Bible commentary, he wrote, I had occasion to compare the 30 19th century Bible commentaries on the book of 1 Corinthians. The first thing I noticed was the extent to which these 19th century writers, many of them well known and respected, copied significant amounts of material from one another without once giving credit. I concluded that 19th century literary, literary ethics, even among the best writers ap approved of, or at least did not seriously question generous literary borrowing without giving credit. Ellen White frankly acknowledged borrowing from various historical writers in the process of writing the great controversy, sometimes with and sometimes without credit. It is not fair to a 19th century writer to judge him or her by our standards today. We must judge them by their standards and accepted practice of their own days. I have no problem when I read it. I've read some of these things. I've gone through the websites and looked at it. It is not at all impressive to make you think that you should put down the spirit of prophecy because of these allegations. Now, again, I said it last week. I'm going to borrow another proverb. The proof in the pudding is in the tasting. If you've not read her books, as, we're gonna go, as we go through, you'll see, you can't understand what is really being said. So watch this. So the next question, let's just jump into the next one. This one is almost more challenging. Questions on racism. I, I, I kind of gave you guys a heads up last week. I was at Loma Linda University Medical Center at the East Campus Hospital. I was the medical director for the urgent care there. I was setting up for a, a Sunday morning shift and I'd gone to the cafe and got me a thing of oatmeal. I was sitting there minding my own business, meditating on the Lord, waiting for the shift to start. Because it was pandemonium every shift. All the patients want to be seen. A nurse comes in and she slams down a stack of papers right in front of me while I'm eating. And she says, Ellen White was a racist. 
I said, man, you know, I'm trying to finish my breakfast. She said, I went to Sabbath school yesterday at the university church. And the teacher showed us that Ellen White was a racist. Now, she was white, blonde hair, blue eyed, wonderful young, uh, uh, nurse, been a nurse for many years, grew up Adventist. And in one sitting, one class, her faith in Ellen White was completely shaken on the issue of race. I have no idea why I, she felt I should be the first one she tells that to. Like, why me? <laughs> so I had to explain to her why that is a laughable charge. Complete foolishness. Let's look at this thing. Let's just throw it out there because there are people who this is their big beef with Ellen White. Um, first of all, I have to say you, you do have to remember the time in which she lived. You have to remember that there was a time of strong racial segregation. In fact, she was born and grew up before slavery was even abolished. So people say, well, she says that, um, you know, the, the people from different races shouldn't get married. Well, when she was alive, that, pro that actually was probably pretty sound advice in many ways. So it wasn't a statement forever, but it was a statement of her time. Because she lived in a very racist time in this country. So watch this. Spiritual gifts. Page uh, um, um, volume three, page 64. And this is the where they get that she's a racist, one of the major places. But if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast, which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful, long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. Now notice, Ellen White uses the word race in at least three different ways. Here she uses it to describe who? Everybody. The whole world before the flood, which means she is referring to race as what? The human race. Which tells you, you've got to be careful how you apply the word, because she does not always, she's not always thinking like even the people of her time are thinking. She here says that there was one, basically one race before the flood. In the next chapter of the same book, or a few pages later, I should say, every species of animal which God had created were, pres were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. And people say, see, she believes some people are a mix of man and animal. Some people say she believes, um, you know, some, certain races of people are lower than other people. They use this and they say that's where we can, you know, you can draw from to say she must have been a racist. But you do have to break this thing down a little bit. And remember that in the Bible, and I should have put the text up in the, in, in, um, uh, in the chapter in Genesis on, uh, on, on the flood, it says that the animals that went into the ark were all those in whom was what? The breath of life. If you read it carefully, it seems as if there's a distinction between some animals having the breath of life and some not having it. Now, you can do a whole study on just that. But it seems as if that there was some distinction that some animals were disqualified from going into the ark. Now, let me, let me just read. I'll just read. We believe that the meaning of the key phrase in question is the LNG White estate again is found by understanding it to read amalgamation of man and of beast. So she wasn't saying of man and beast like together. No more than you would say God scattered a man and beast around the world. You wouldn't think they like all started and ended the same place. Thus, the passage will be speaking of the amalgamation of different races of mankind and the amalgamation of different races of animals. The grammatical construction and common usage permit us to understand of as being implied. So, first of all, it's the amalgamation of man and of beast. It wasn't like she was teaching that somehow they were mixing. That's not at all what she was saying. So the first statement is explained here. Now, and Genesis 6, 1 and 2 gives you a taste of what she's referring to. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth 
and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were what? Beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And here you see the second application to race. There were two different lines of people. And where did they come from? Do you remember? One was the descendants of Cain. One were the descendants of who? Seth. So different were they that one of them is called the sons of God. The others are called the sons or the daughters of men. They were that different. And this is the point. The other way that man can be split is by their spiritual content and character. When Jesus comes, there will be two races of people on the planet. Those who have the seal of the living God and those who have the mark of the beast. Here's what she says. For some time, the two classes remained separate. The race of Cain, see how she said? The race of Cain. Spreading from the place of their settlement, dispersed over the plains and valleys where the children of Seth had dwelt, and the latter, in order to escape from the contaminating influence, withdrew to the mountains and there made their home. So long as the separation continued, they maintained the worship of God in its purity. But in the lapse of time, they ventured little by little to mingle with the inhabitants of the valleys. The association was productive of the worst results. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. The children of Seth, attracted by the beauty of the daughters of Cain's descendants, displeased the Lord by intermarrying with them. Many of the worshipers of God were guiled into sin by the allurements that, that were now constantly before them, and they lost their peculiar holy character, mingling with the depraved. They became like them in spirit and in deeds. The restrictions of the seventh commandment were disregarded, and they took them wives of all which they chose. The children of Seth went in the way of Cain and fixed their minds upon worldly prosperity and enjoyment and neglected the commandments of the Lord. As the sons of God mingled with the sons of men, they became corrupt. and By intermarriage with them, lost through the influence of their wives, their peculiar holy character, and united with the sons of Cain in their idolatry. What is that text saying when it goes when you go back and it talks about the, um, the um, you know the amalgamation? It was the amalgamation. And it says it happened after the flood. It absolutely did the same way. Noah's descendants were supposed to stay right and holy, did they? Before long, there was a tower of Babel, and there were again two races based on spiritual content and character. And she says that as they mix together, and what happens as you, as you go away from God and live in sin, and now they began to eat things they ought not eat and do things they ought not do, it affected them not just physically, I mean, not just spiritually, but also physically. So she speaks that you could see it in some people. This isn't racism. This is a statement that if you veer away from God and his purposes, trouble comes. Nehemiah, in those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of, their, of the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them. This is what Nehemiah did. Struck some of them and pulled out their hair. And Nehemiah was gangster. And made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Uh, did not, look at what he said, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Watch this. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. The amalgamation was a spiritual one. That's what Ellen White was talking about. And later on, as she remade the book, came out with Patriarchs Prophets, that part is not even in there. It's as if Ellen White realized people could not fully understand it and it doesn't appear again. Yet people go back to it to try and convince you that she was a racist because she said it. She clearly did not believe you could mix people with with, with, with animals, but she definitely didn't believe you could, you could, um, you know, some, you know, clearly she didn't believe that. 
But people harp on it because they want to hate her. So let's see. Was Ellen White a racist? Let's go to her words. Again, the proof in the pudding is in the tasting. Here we go. This is Ellen White speaking. Last day events, page 48. I was confirmed in all I had stated in Minneapolis that a reformation must go through the churches. Reforms must be made for spiritual weakness and blindness were upon the people who had been blessed with great light and precious opportunities and privileges. As reformers, they had come out of the come out of the denominational churches. That's how the Adventist church came together, people from all denominations. But they now act a part similar to that which the churches acted. Now watch this. This is deep. Ellen White says, we hoped that there would not be the necessity for another coming out. While we endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace, we will not with pen or voice cease to protest against bigotry. Ellen, the only time in all of her writings, Ellen White ever can speaks as if she would consider leaving the Seventh-day Adventist church is when she says, I would leave if the church is determined to be bigotous. If the church is going to be a racist church, I can't stay here. I hope you're getting this. Because people don't, this is, you know, people don't want to read the rest of the story. They want to take some one obscure little thing and then try and make a statement about it. Let, let's keep going. Look at what she says here. Was it God's purpose that the colored people should have so much guilt and woe in their lives? No. Men, which men? Men who have had greater advantages than they have had have taught them immorality both by precept and example. Debasing practices have been forced upon them and they have received low conceptions of life and even their conceptions of the Christian life are of a depraved order. Why? Because the master, slave masters were so depraved in slavery itself. Watch this. But the people who have been more favorably situated, who have had light and liberty, who have had an opportunity to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, are responsible for the moral darkness that enshrouds their colored brethren. Does that sound like the words of a racist? She, she couldn't get on Fox News saying this stuff. Watch this. Can they who have been so highly privileged afford to stand in their pride and importance and feel that they are altogether too good to associate with this deprived, depraved race? Depraved, meaning that they have not gotten what they should have gotten from you. And this is the third way she uses race, and it's the, the and of all the times we refer to it, it's the first time she uses it as we understand it. You notice that? It is when she is saying that they were, that the, the slave, the colored people, they call called black people colored still back then. I don't advise you call black people colored today. Um, they said, she says uh, that this came from the situation they were in. Look what she says. Let those who profess to be Christians look to the example of Christ. He stooped to take human nature in order that he might be able to reach man where he was. The majesty of heaven came to seek and save that which was lost. And shall those, look at the, look at the rebuke she gives, shall those for whom Christ has done so much stand aloof from their fellow men who are now perishing in their own sins. In other words, how dare you see there was a fight in the church as to whether or not they should leave the north and go down south to evangelize as missionaries in the south after the civil war. And there are many who had no desire to win black souls to Christ. Now Ellen White is rebuking them. You, what do you mean you won't go and reach uh, your black brothers and sisters? Do you know how far God came in Christ Jesus to save you? How dare you now say you won't go down and help somebody else? Look at what she said. The book, The Southern Work, if you've never read it, is it is it is it is decades before Martin Luther King Jr. and it is light years ahead of even some of what he says. Look at what she says here. Southern work page 12. The day is coming when the kings and the lordly men of the earth would be glad to exchange places with the humblest African who has laid hold on the hope of the gospel. Let me tell you something on the judgment day. You're going to see some of the great kings of the world, some of the royal families of Europe, and they're going to look and they're going to see some of the simplest Africans who are colonized. Yoke was broken under imperialism and slavery. And because they hold on to the gospel as they rise. 
There are going to be those who wish they could switch places. Kingly crown, their plantations and estates won't mean anything on that day. Look what Ellen White said again. Before her time, she says, if they believe on him, his cleansing blood is applied to them. The black man's name is written in the book of life beside the white man's. All are one in Christ. Birth, station, nationality, or color cannot elevate or degrade men. What makes the man, she says? The character makes the man. Later on, Martin Luther King would say, I have a dream that one day my uh, children would be judged by the content of the character and not by the color of their skin. Ellen White, decades earlier, said, no, all are one in Christ. Does this sound like the words of a racist? Here's what she says. Walls of separation have been built up between the whites and the blacks. These walls of prejudice will tumble down of themselves, as did the walls of Jericho when Christians obey the word of God, which enjoins on them supreme love to their maker and impartial love to their neighbors. When I was in Australia, I went to Sunnyside. I took this picture myself. That's why it looks so messed up. Um, <laughs> at the top of the house isn't even on it. Um, and this was where Ellen White lived in Australia. And on the wall was hanging a picture of her and her family. And the, on the right, the picture of the Morning Star boat. And the, and the person giving me the tour explained to me that it was one of her sons that she put on this boat and sent down the Mississippi River post-Civil War to establish uh, an educational institution and to witness to the former slaves. Now, what a racist in the late 1800s Send a white son into the post-Civil War South to win black people? That was like, that was almost a suicide mission. He could be strung up and he could be lynched for teaching black people. I hope you're getting this. And today that institution still stands. I graduated from that institution. Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama. A blessed institution. Ellen White had the vision. She said where it should go. Told them how to buy the land. She was concerned with the well-being of the former slaves. And to this day, of all the universities in this country, to this day, Oakland is still among the top by percentage in producing African-American physicians. Don't believe the lie. So, prophecies that were fulfilled. I said I will just touch on this lightly. Um, men in responsible positions will not only ignore and despise the Sabbath themselves, this is just one of her prophecies, we're going to switch gears now, but from the sacred desk will urge upon the people the observance of the first day of the week. Pleading tradition and custom in behalf of this man-made institution, this will point to calamities on land and sea to the storms of, uh, they will point to calamities on land and sea to the storms of wind, the floods, the earthquakes, the destruction by fire, as judgments indicating God's displeasure because Sunday is not sacredly observed. She prophesied that the day will come that people will say that the, the, the disasters, and you see, and let me tell you, this is, we're not even going to go here today, but let me just say it clear. You know, this is the hottest year on record again. It was, so, it was 103 degrees in the United Kingdom. They were telling me that the roads aren't made the same way they're made in like Florida. So when it gets that hot, the road starts to melt. And people are clamoring now for us to fix everything from climate change. The floods in Kentucky, the fires in Alaska, 530-something fires burning the size of the state of Connecticut right now in Alaska. Ellen White's prophecy is that the day will come when they will see these catastrophes and they will say, if we keep Sunday sacred, this will stop. We can appease God. And those who choose not to, she says, will be viewed as the reason for the calamities. That's the prophecy. That's a big prophecy. Can that prophecy come true? She goes on and says, In accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes, in terrific hailstorms, in tempest flood cyclones, tidal waves and earthquakes, in every place in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest and famine, famine and distress follow. He imparts on the air a deadly taint in thousands Perish by the pestilence. These visitations have become more and more frequent and disastrous. And this is from 
the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake that created a tsunami that just caught, took over 200,000 lives. Some of y'all remember this, don't you? It's Boxing Day, December 26th. And then when the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils, the class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof of transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. And those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. And then the great deceiver will persuade men. This is the look at the destruction that thing caused. Will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. All right, so watch this. This is Mike, Minister John McLeod, a Presbyterian minister from Scotland. He says, some of the places most affected by this tsunami attracted pleasure seekers from all over the world. It has to be noted that the wave arrived, look at what he says here, on the Lord's Day. What day does he believe the Lord's Day is? The day that God has set apart to observe, observe the world over by a holy resting from all employments and recreations that are, on, that are lawful on other days. He says the reason this thing happened on Sunday was because they were doing stuff on Sunday they shouldn't have been doing. But they could have done it another day of the week. A little funny there, huh? He, he says we cannot but fear that it found multitudes unprepared for eternity into which they were ushered so suddenly and without warning. There is much sorrow over those who perished and much sympathy for those that survived, especially for the bereaved and the destitute, and rightly so. But as far as we are able to judge, there has been as yet little acknowledgement of the hand of God in the matter, and no evidence of repentance. He says it was God's hand that struck them on a Sunday because they were violating the sacredness of Sunday. Just as Ellen White said would happen. If you think it's impossible, that was one of them. Look at this. This is a Mississippi senator. I should have put her picture on here. She suggests that voting on Sunday will offend God. And then she says, remember the Sabbath. I hope you guys are getting this. These prophecies are coming true. One of the most startling and most powerful ways that you can show that Ellen White's fruits come to pass are her health insights. I'm going to show you some powerful ones and we'll be done. Dr. Clive McKay, a noted nutrition authority, half a century after Mrs. White's day, said that you could not account so easily for this, uh, for what she wrote. Dr. McKay, a Unitarian who taught the history of nutrition at Cornell University, received a copy of Councils on Diets and Foods from an Adventist graduate student. He was astonished at what he read there, each statement identified by the year of its publication. For any given year, Dr. McKay knew who had been writing on nutrition and what they had written. This is what the, the Dr. McKay says. Who is this Ellen G. White, he asked, and why haven't I heard of her before? He was so impressed by Ellen White's writings on nutrition that he authored a three-part series of articles for the Review and Herald. Note a portion of his summation to the end. To sum up the discussion... Every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen G. White, a secular nutritionist. He says, in the first place, her basic concepts about the relation between diet and health have been verified to an unusual degree by scientific advances of the past decades. Someone may attempt to explain this remarkable fact by saying Mrs. White simply borrowed her ideas, back to plagiarism, he says, someone might say Mrs. White simply borrowed her ideas from others, but how would she know which ideas to borrow and which to reject out of the bewildering array of theories and health teachings current in the 19th century? She would have had to be an, a most amazing person with knowledge beyond her times in order to do this successfully. In spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. White were written long before the advent of modern scientific nutrition, no better overall guide is available today. In the years since Dr. McKay made his observations, scientific advances have confirmed his conclusions and Ellen White's concepts about the relation of diet and health all the more strongly. Right now, people are giving up meat. There are vegan restaurants everywhere you go. They just opened one in, in, a new one in West Hartford. 
They're constantly opening them. People are giving up meat, and there's a lot of reasons they do. One is the environment. One is animal. You know, they don't want to hurt our animals. But the third one is health. People have come to realize outside our church. I wish we had a chain of, um, of vegan restaurants as a church. But the world has jumped all over it. Look at what she says. Ministry of Healing, page 313. Don't miss this. Flesh was never the best food, but its use is now doubly objectionable since disease in animals is so rapidly increasing. Have you heard of mad cow's disease? Those who use flesh foods little know what they are eating. Often if they could see the animals when living and know the quality of the meat they eat, they would turn from it with loathing. People are continually eating flesh that is, look at this, that is filled with tuberculosis and cancerous germs. What kind of germs? Tuberculosis, cancer, and other fatal diseases are thus communicated. She said this long before she died in 1915. That was unheard of. And let me prove that to you as a medical doctor. This is Francis Peyton Roos, who shared a Nobel Prize in physiology of, or medicine in 1966 with Charles Benton Huggins for his discovery of tumor-inducing viruses found in meat. Now, here's what's crazy. He gave up looking for the viruses because they laughed at him in, I think it was somewhere around 1918. They laughed at him in 1910. Rose, uh, he, was, he was doing the research. They laughed at him so bad, he quit doing the research for like tw almost 20 years because they said, you're a fool to believe that you, because he was doing it with chickens, that you can from meat get a virus that would cause cancer. The man was so uh, 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 broken over it, he stopped doing the research. Now he's doing the research after Ellen White has already said, this is how it happens. 50 years later, he wins the Nobel Prize for that very thing. The thing Ellen White said, years before he found it. And now it is commonly understood. This is nutritionfacts.org, the role of meat and dairy viruses in cancer. She spoke things that she could not have spoken without inspiration. She didn't have a PhD in anything. But she didn't just talk about meat. Look at this. Tobacco is a poison of most deceitful and malignant kind, having an exciting, then a paralyzing influence upon the nerves of the body. It is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are slow and, it, and at first scarcely perceivable. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4. So she had this, she talked about tobacco. Nobody believed that what she was saying about tobacco. They didn't understand the dopaminergic pathways of the brain, how nicotine excites stimulates uh, blood constriction and raises blood pressure. They didn't understand all that stuff. She says it works slowly, and that's literally what tobacco does. You start smoking when you're 13, 14 years old. It gives you a buzz. You're running around like you're crazy. At 55, you, you have an oxygen tank pulling around because you can't breathe from COPD. Look at what she says. Many infants are poisoned beyond remedy by sleeping in beds with their tobacco-using fathers. By inhaling the poison, poisonous tobacco effluvium, which is thrown from the lungs and pores of the skin, this is secondhand smoke she's talking about now, the system of the infant is filled with poison. While it acts upon some infants as a slow poison and affects the brain, heart, liver, and lungs, and they waste away and fade gradually, upon others it has a more direct influence, causing spasms, paralysis, and sudden death. Have you heard of SIDS? Sudden infant death syndrome, higher in a house where someone smokes. The bereaved parents mourn the loss of their loved ones and wonder at the mysterious providence of God, which has so cruelly affected them when providence designed not the death of these infants. They died martyrs to the filthy lust for tobacco. Every exhalation of the lungs of, of the tobacco slave poisons the air about him. The health reformer, January 1st, 1872. She spoke against secondhand smoke long before society did. In fact, let me show you how crazy it gets. This is a doctor holding a pack of Lucky Strikes. And look what the, the, some of you remember these old advertisements. Smoking is what? Good for you, they said. This was on billboards as you drove the roads of America. Look at this one. Viceroys, filter the smoke. As your dentist, I would recommend. You want messed up teeth? Smoke. Smoke and eat candy. That'll do it. 
right? Look at this one. Um, this one, look at the ba little baby, the Marlboro. And they have the little baby. Just one question, mom. Can you afford not to smoke Marlboro? But it was years later, the history of the Surgeon General reports on smoking and health. It wasn't until 1964. Was he a prophet? It wasn't until 1964, Luther Terry, MD, Surgeon General of the United States Public Health Service, released the first report of the Surgeon General's Advisory Committee on Smoking and Health on the basis of more than 7,000 articles related to smoking and disease already available at the time in the biomedical literature. And they came up with a conclusion that, uh, that it causes lung cancer and laryngeal cancer in men, probably causes lung cancer in women, because women didn't smoke much back then, and the most important cause of chronic bronchitis, ultimately COPD, and all the other things. Years before they did this, Ellen White warned of the dangers of tobacco and secondhand smoke. 1986. It was 1986. The U.S. General Surgeon General concluded this, that secondhand smoke was a major health risk to non-smokers. Can you believe that? She said that a, um, over a almost a century earlier. Stand in defense of Ellen White Church. And I do not, again, I want to say it clear, I do not elevate her above the Bible. I do not believe that you read this instead of the Bible. I believe you read the Bible and let this shine light on it. She says her writings are the lesser light to the greater light. But there is a profit for this time because we are dealing with things. They didn't, they didn't have to deal with opium and, and Starbucks and stuff we deal with today. They didn't have to deal with, two, you know, a thousand years ago. Her writings give us instruction. There's a book. Where did I put it? A book that I, we ordered online from a used bookstore. Um, from this book is from 1935, original. You can see it looks original. Um, this is from the Detroit German Seventh Day Adventist Church. The name of the book is "The Spirit of Prophecy in the Advent Movement" by uh, W. A. Spicer. I'm gonna read a couple of the stories out here real quick, and then we're done. He says in the book, we do not have to defend this gift. It is our defense. An old West Indian man, age 78, had the right idea of these books. He was always seen carrying the book, Christ our Savior, wherever he went. He said, I love this book, he said. When people ask me the reason for carrying it about with me, I reply, oh, this book is my bodyguard. From the time I started to read it, I have been a changed man. I do not know how the change came about. One thing I know, I changed since I started to read it. Another story is this one. When the Desire of Ages was, the writings carry their own credentials. And this is the story says, when the Desire of Ages was brought out in Great Britain, a society lady in Edinburgh read a copy. She was agitated. She said to our people, and these are the co-porters that are given the story, you are a small people. You ought not have the circulation of a book like this. It ought, not, it ought to be in the hands of the big London publisher. The woman concluded this. It seems inspired. You can find all of those and many more such stories in this book. Again, I challenge you. Take up the books. Read The Desire of Ages. But before you read the chapter in The Desire of Ages, read the chapters from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And then read the chapter and watch how the Bible comes alive. Your understanding of it crystallizes. And you, as you do that, you know, as you seek to get a, be a healthier person, read uh, councils on diets and foods and ministry of healing. and Watch how the word that she wrote is able to instruct and lead. Scientifically, as a physician, I am amazed when I study the spirit of prophecy and see all the ways she was so accurate about things way back then that modern science is just beginning to prove i'll finish with this and somebody's not gonna like me for finishing with it but i'm gonna finish with it anyway she is the one who said cheese is not fit for human consumption and you know what the science is overwhelmingly saying now literally one of the worst things you can consume is dairy cheese i know i shouldn't have said that right before lunch probably but it speaks to the fact she was inspired. I stand in defense of these writings. I pray more importantly that you take them and read them along and most importantly with your Bible 
so that you're instructed in how to be the best Christian you can be with the character of Christ in these last days. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word and to look at the spirit of prophecy. Father God, we understand that this is a gift given us for instruction in these last days. I pray in a special way, Lord, that we take heed to these lessons. Father God, we do not leave these books unread. Lord, as we study our word, the word of God, the most important book, the Bible, we read these books for the inspiration they give us living in these last and most trying times. Bless your church, Lord, to be able to defend the faith you have given them. And I pray, Lord, that we would all be counted righteous and be able to stand in that great day. And when you come in the clouds of glory, Father, we want to be able to say, Lo, here is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. So our prayer in Jesus' is precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.